0: 5th grade or younger, there's a service downstairs just for you if you like to go to that. And uh, I'd like to ask the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles <clears throat> this morning to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. I am interrupting the series that I have been preaching on prayer um, because I was in prayer meeting Wednesday night and uh, God in the midst of that meeting um as I was burdened about a number of things, laid on my heart uh, very strongly that I should uh, bring a message from Philippians 2 this morning. And so uh, that's where we are. And uh, it's not on prayer so much as it is on the church. And also, uh, there's not a study guide this morning. Um, I had a a very challenging time trying to... uh, build an outline out of my thoughts that have been kind of freewheeling uh, over the last couple of weeks, and this last week in particular, and as a consequence of that, um, you know, it just seemed like I needed to open my heart to God and then uh, share with you as God has put things on my heart. And so I would like you to pray with me, and then I'm going to uh, ask a question this morning that I hope to answer from the Scriptures, and the question is, why Go to church. Why go to church? Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning in Jesus' name, and I want to ask you to open your word to us. But Father, we know that even if your Holy Spirit illuminates the word and anoints it and it goes forth powerfully, then unless we have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts ready to receive, That that word is like the seed that was sown on the stony ground, and it the the birds of the air plucked it away, and it yielded absolutely no fruit at all. It didn't even produce a plant. So we pray this morning that we would be prepared soil, that you would make us teachable, humble, and open to your spirit, and that we would receive the word that is planted, and that it would grow in our hearts and bear fruit. Father, I pray that you would anoint me to preach it. Lord, I pray that you would hide me in the cross. And I pray this morning that you would guard me from uh, you know any things that I would say on my own initiative, but that you would prompt and direct in all the message that the Lord Jesus Christ might be magnified and glorified. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. I want to ask the question this morning, why go to church? And I want to try to bring a biblical answer to that. And let me give you some background for the reasons why that particular question is is floating around in my mind. Church, the face of church in the United States is changing. I don't think that's true all over the world, but it's certainly true in the United States. There's a whole different feel that's going on out there. Many of you may not realize that the average church in America is less than about 70 people. And that 80% of the churches fall below 70 people. Um, You know, 70 people below. And you say, how can you have an average and then 80%? Well, there are some very large churches, and then there's some very small churches. The average comes out to be about 70, 75. But 80% of churches fall in that category or lower. Another thing that is quite alarming that I recently heard is that every year, 10,000 churches close their doors permanently, put a for sale sign on the door, and they're done. Lyle Schaller, a church statistician actually lives right in the Naperville area in this region, and an astute Methodist scholar, has studied churches in America, and Lyle Schaller predicted right at the turn of the century that in the coming decade of America's 300,000 churches, over 100,000 would close permanently in the next 10 years. And now we hear the statistic that 10,000 churches every year are closing their doors forever. That's amazing. That's a phenomena in our time that has occurred in other parts of the world, but has never occurred in the United States before. Couple that with the fact that George Barna's research shows that many people are leaving the church even though they are not leaving the faith. They are leaving the organized church, but not uh, professing to be other than Christian, they're maintaining their Christian profession, but they're never attending church. In fact, um, he in, in some of his studies have has discovered that there's an entire movement of people who are listening to online sermons or listening to radio or TV uh, messages. They're getting it by way of their iPods and uh, different kinds of uh, MP3 players and one way or another, um, they're getting their teaching that way. They're doing Bible studies. They're getting together at, at the coffee shop or the golf course or wherever they happen to congregate, maybe break time at work with a few other believers. And around the country, people are getting together in groups of two or three or four. <clears throat> they, don't have, they don't have a pastor. They don't have elders. They don't have organization. They don't have ministries. They don't have any structure. But they're happy because they're uh, getting together with other Christians, and for them that suffices as church. An increasing number of people, and this is on the rise, are finding they don't even need that necessarily. They're getting their church from the internet or through other technology. They're listening to streaming messages online, or they're uh, reading blogs, or they're uh, now... um, uh, tweeting one another on Twitter. And one way or another, they're just keeping up uh, with what's going on electronically and never even seeing the need to have personal fellowship, connectedness, face-to-face, one-to-one. And so, I ask the question, with all of the change that's afoot and with all of the opportunities that present themselves, why go to church? If you say, I go to church to hear the Word of God preached, the fact is you can hear the Word of God preached in, any, in, in many other venues. And by some of the best preachers in the country, we know they're the best preachers in the country because they have the largest crowds and the biggest budgets and they're able to be on radio and television and internet and whatever else. And so you can hear sermons by those preachers. You can join an, uh, uh, an email prayer group. You can listen to Christian music on all kinds of radio stations or buy CDs or listen to them on on your iPod or whatever. If you go to church for the music, if you go to church for for the prayer connection, if you go to church for fellowship, well, there's all kinds of things happening that do not require church as part of the equation in order to meet the need. Hence, many people who have asked the question, why go to church, have said, well, golly, I don't see a good reason to go to church. I think I'll just stop. It it, it intrudes in my schedule. I have to spend the extra time on Sunday and I've got other things going on. And I don't have any obligation if I don't have a church uh, home that I attend. So why go to church? I don't know. I think I'll quit. But friends, I want to remind us this morning that Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he was not talking about a a loose collection of individual believers scattered around a country that have no committed connection to one another. But he was talking about a family that represents the bodily presence of Jesus Christ on this earth in community, whereby the watching world can observe a group of people in a family atmosphere and observe the way they love each other, and that is the clearest testimony that we have on this planet, that God is alive in the midst of His people, is when we come together in a family called the church. Jesus died for His church universal, and it is represented by local congregations that comprise that, that universal church. The Scripture says that Jesus treats the church as His bride. In fact, every time anyone goes to Ephesians 5, everybody automatically thinks it's going to be a sermon on marriage. But if you look at that context very closely, Paul says what I'm talking about is the relationship between Christ and his church. He does discuss the issue of marriage in that passage, but he says in the context, husbands love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he says Christ died for the church that He might cleanse her and, and, and present her uh, as a bride without spot or blemish. The Scripture throughout the New Testament represents Jesus as a bridegroom returning for His bride. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we find that Jesus has raptured or gathered His church up to Himself, and there is a wedding feast about to happen, and a table is set, and the marriage supper of the Lamb is about to occur, and Jesus, the bridegroom, is, is receiving His bride on that occasion, and John says, "...I looked and saw..." representation of every tongue and tribe and nation and people sitting around that table who were from all the nations of the world and all the language groups and all the colors and all the races who had been redeemed and purchased by the blood of the Lamb in that one feast and celebration as Jesus is united with His bride for all of eternity. The Scripture says that Jesus died for the church. Yes, I know He died for you and me individually. And we come into the kingdom of God one by one. But Jesus said, I will build my church. And when He prayed that last high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, the thing that Jesus prayed for was His church. He said, Father, I want them to be one like we are one. I want them to be together with each other and with us as you and I are together and one in our heart and in our focus and in our love. I want them to be one. I pray for their unity. I pray that they would be together. Because nothing, Jesus, Jesus Himself said this, nothing will speak to the world about the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives any more powerfully than when the world sees how we love each other. Jesus said, By this all men will know that you're my disciples, when they see the way you love each other. And friends, you can't see that unless you're in a community, a committed community, in a committed fellowship, in a local level, where you come together for the purpose of magnifying and glorifying Jesus Christ and being made over into His image. I want to submit to you that God invented the church to demonstrate the power of His grace in the process of of salvation and sanctification, of making us over into the likeness of Jesus Christ, that He might restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and brought division into their own lives and division with God, and and the human family fell apart. Jesus Christ calls the church together. In fact, the very word church in the New Testament, ecclesia, is the called-out ones who are called out of the world together to be together, that as a family we might demonstrate what was lost in the garden but is recovered in Jesus Christ. The answer to the question, why go to church, is that the church is the place where the Holy Spirit of God knocks off the rough edges shapes you and molds you as you come together to magnify Jesus Christ and to worship Him as a family the church is the place where God demonstrates His grace and power making you look like Him and demonstrating to the world what it is for a group of people who under any other circumstances might not even like each other can come together in a family and love each other and demonstrate it to the watching world. Church is not about an organization. It has organization, but it's not an organization. It's a living building. The Scripture says we are living stones that are cemented together by the mortar of love into a living temple that is the the dwelling place of God. And friends, it is only in that context that we can magnify Jesus Christ. And it's only in that context that we can grow in Christ-like character. We are intended... God has... I've always felt this. God has a great sense of humor. And the way He goes about making us holy is He puts us together with a bunch of people who have different ideas, different goals, different agendas, different personalities, different temperaments, who rub each other the wrong way, who irritate one another, um, who get upset with each other, who fail each other. And he puts this together and he says, you've got to love each other. I've always felt that the real purpose of every committee in the church was not to do a job that it was assigned, but the real purpose of every committee was for God to take a small subset of people, put them in a box, and start rattling them around together until they get all smoothed out and and shiny and start to look like Jesus. His goal is to bring us into community that in the context of loving relationships, he can manifest his glory in an amazing way. So why go to church? We go to church because church, not the organization, not the style of worship, not the committee meetings and the ministries, but the family is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit takes place that shapes us into the character of Christ. And it is the place where the world sees the, the testimony of His evidence and He is glorified. And nothing else will substitute for a local church in that process. Now, having said that, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to a church that happens to be located in the city of Philippi. The Philippian church is a very sweet church. It, it, it's one of those uh, assemblies, one of those fellowships that, that you would like to be in if, if you were in the area. It's, it's, a, it's a gracious church. It's a loving church. And in fact, Philippians is actually an expanded thank you note. Because the Philippians had sent a gift to Paul. And in sending that gift, he was responding to them, telling them, thank you for thinking about me. But in the course of that, Paul uh, writes to this very gracious church, and he has a few words to say to them, because there's a couple of people, we find this out in chapter 4, there's a couple of people that aren't getting along with each other very well. And Paul is concerned about that. And so he wants to write the church about the subject of unity. And in the course of that, in chapter 2, he gives this great illustration. And he starts out like this. Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Now, I want to point out how Paul starts, because he is, he is concerned about some division that is occurring. Some people have fallen out with one another, and they're, they're a little frustrated. And he's concerned about this division. But in the process of that, he takes their eyes back to Jesus. And, and, I, want to, and I want to let you know, folks, if, if, you, if you just look at each other, you're never going to get out of the soup. You're never going to get the problem solved if all you do is look at one another all the time. You've got to go back and look at Jesus. He is the one that kind of resets the compass, recalibrates the meter. He's the one that kind of returns to the standard, the baseline, however you want to look at it. You've got to focus on Jesus in order to get your vision straight. And so Paul focuses their attention on Jesus. And this is what he says. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you have encouragement from being united with Christ? Is that an encouragement to you? Do you like to know today that that you are literally in union with the living God? That you have been saved by grace and you have a vital connection with the living God? You can talk to Him and He listens to you. Isn't that amazing? Not only do you have connection with the living God, but you have a God who has said, I will supply all of your needs according to my riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I care about you. I will take care of you. Is that encouraging to you? And then you have the assurance that when that moment comes and this earthly life ends, you don't end. You immediately go into the presence of God. You will live with Him eternally. You are alive forever right now. You will never die as a person. You will never cease to exist as a person. I know that's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine. But the truth is that one day my body is going to quit, but I'm not. Jesus said that to Mary and Martha when they were concerned about Lazarus. He says, don't you know that whoever lives and believes in me will never die? And so is that encouraging today to know that no matter what happens to you in this world, you will live forever in the presence of God. When you'll never die, you'll always be you and you'll always be alive. That's that's good news. Paul says, I want you to think about that for a moment, what Jesus has done for you. Is there any comfort from his love? Think about the love of Jesus Christ. Are you comforted by that? How many places in Scripture portray Jesus as one who, uh, or or God as uh, the Father, as one who gathers uh, people under his wing, who nurtures them, who cares for them? The imagery of Jesus outside of Jerusalem, as he's weeping over this rebellious group of, of hard-headed Jewish people down there in Jerusalem, says, how many times I would like to have gathered you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks. And you wouldn't. You just wouldn't do it. But, but there's no more tender sight than, than seeing a, a mother bird having gathered her offspring under her wings and covering them. That imagery is in the Psalms, it's throughout the Scriptures. The the imagery of coming into the presence of God, of being welcomed into the throne room, of the comfort that God gives, that, that only God knows the inside of you more than anyone and He can comfort you in a way that no one else can. Paul says, I want you to think about that comfort that comes from His love. If there's any fellowship with the Spirit, do you have the Holy Spirit guiding your life? Do you have His encouragement? Do you have His direction? Does He speak to you? Does He lead you? Do you have that kind of fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Is there tenderness and compassion in Jesus? You see what he's doing? He's getting our attention on Jesus. He has loved us. He has died for us. He has given us His Spirit. He has been placed in us as the down payment, the guarantee of our ultimate redemption. He has assured us of eternal life. He has taken us to His heart in love. He has filled us with tenderness and compassion. God has done this for us when we deserve none of it. You've got to recalibrate the meter. You've got to get focused vertically. Because Paul was about to say, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. There's an interesting passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 13. It's just one verse. You don't have to turn there unless you want to, but it's Hebrews 13:17. It says this. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be no advantage to you. That's the writer of Hebrews. Obey your leaders so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. Paul says in a couple of places, but one of them that I can think of, he says, I am in travail again. I am in labor again, lest Christ fail to be formed in you. I am concerned that that you as a church, he's <laughs> speaking to the Galatians, he says, I'm concerned that you, could, that you may fail. And he says, I'm in travail. And then in Corinthians he says, the weight of all the churches is upon me, and I feel the burden of their care. Friends, I want to tell you something this morning. Any leader, any pastor, teacher, any elder worth his salt, any, any spiritual leader worth his salt, cares deeply about the people of God and particularly those under their care. And that care, when we see the church wavering in turmoil, that care becomes a burden. And when people become stubborn and, and discontent, there is concern that somehow the purpose of sanctification the purpose of growing in Christ likeness is going to be aborted that it's not going to come to fruition and there's a burden and that burden sometimes can get very heavy Paul says make my joy complete by having by being intent on one purpose by being like minded and you know I was thinking about it this week Now, one of the things that I was thinking about is, God did not call me to build a big church. And based on my ministry here of 25 years, I don't think there's a real danger of that occurring. (laughs) But God did not call me to build a big church. But he did call me to build big Christians. Do you see the difference in that? Jesus said, I will build my church. That's his job. That is not my job. But he said, I have given unto you pastor-teachers, among others, to equip the saints for the work of ministry until we all attain to the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that growing up in love we might become mature, and that we might learn together as a family how to minister one to another with that that every gift every person has, ministering one to another, cementing ourselves together in the bond of love that we might grow up into Christian maturity. God has called me to build big Christians. And my responsibility is to preach the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to pray for you, to encourage you, to nurture you in your giftedness, to to encourage you in the Scriptures, to to hold our feet collectively to the fire, that Christ be fully formed in us, that we grow up in Him. And I want you to be everything that Jesus Christ has called you to be. I want you to reflect His character. I want you to, to, to fail and get up and hit it again. I want you to encourage others out of your experiences. I want you to to pray for one another. I want you, when you hurt each other, to learn how to go and apologize and ask for forgiveness. I want you to learn how to rejoice when someone else has something marvelous happen to them. and, And you literally dance for joy over their blessing. I want you to to be that family that models and reflects the character of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Now, friends, I want to hasten to say that what Paul is not saying here is everybody ought to agree on everything so that you all do the same things and like it. That is not what he's saying. That's never going to happen, by the way, because we're all different people. We're not ever going to agree on everything. Uh, We have all kinds of different opinions and ideas. But it's not talking about our methodology or our practices or our ministries or whatever things we're doing. It's talking about the purpose of coming together in the family of God, praying for one another, growing together in love until we look like Jesus Christ and sticking by the stuff as God performs that work in us. That's what we're called to do. And that purpose is to magnify Jesus Christ by loving each other and testifying to the watching world of his grace and power and glory in the midst of us. That God among us breaks out into the community. That is the, the focus, the purpose. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul makes that abundantly clear that we have one goal, and that is to lift up Jesus Christ, and in doing so, to be made into His character and likeness. And he says it is important that everything else becomes subordinate to that objective. So, he goes on in verse 3, and he says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, I, I want to say this morning, every one of us here th- this is this is our uh, common language, our, our vernacular. We have an agenda. you know if the if the chair uh, person of a committee comes to the meeting with an agenda, you know what that means. That person, he or she, has a plan that is going to guide the committee toward some uh, predetermined objective. Now, they may not have foregone the conclusions, but they know what topics they want to consider, and they want the committee to run on that agenda. That's The reason you have an agenda is to stay on track toward a goal. And every one of us has an agenda for ourselves. You may not have written it down on paper. It may not be formalized, but you have stuff you're after. You have goals you want. You have things you want that that please you. That satisfy you. That comfort you. That make you happy. That's your agenda. But Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition Or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Now, this is not some kind of Christian uh, masochism where, you know, we we see ourselves as martyrs. You know, uh, woe is me, I have to give up all my rights. I mean, that attitude will leak out all over the place. But it does literally mean that when we come together, we check our agenda at the door, in a sense, because we become more concerned about one another's goals. I'm concerned about yours. I want to know what your needs are. I want to know how to minister to you. And he literally says, we have to have an attitude in ourselves that says, Harry's needs are more important than mine this morning. Ryan's needs are more important than mine today. I, I may have walked in this door with needs, but when I meet my brothers and my sisters, the most important thing in front of me is their needs, not mine. And, and if you doubt what I'm saying here, he says, each one of you... Uh, should in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one should look out not only for your own interest, but for the interest of others. This is the attitude that you should have, the same one that Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But, it says, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see what it's saying? Who in this world, who in this universe has rights? Tell me that that person is not Jesus Christ. He is the Almighty God, King of kings, Lord of lords. If anyone has rights... Jesus Christ has rights. He and the Father are one, the Godhead supreme, the eternal God. God Almighty has the right to do anything He wants to do and everything He ever does will always be right. He has that right. And Jesus Christ existed face to face with Him in eternal unity. And the Scripture says that although For him, being equal with God was natural. It wasn't something he grasped at. It was natural. Because he is God. But he laid it aside. And he was born of a poor peasant virgin woman and and a laboring man in a cattle stall and put to rest on his first night in a feeding trough and grew up in poverty and never had a place to call his own. He said, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but I don't have anywhere that I can call mine to lay my head. Until he was ultimately persecuted to a cross and killed by jealous religious leaders who despised his truthful teachings. That on that cross he might die for your sins and mine. Can I take you back to the vertical calibration again? What rights do you and I have? Beside Jesus Christ. What rights? I don't have any. There is nothing I want for me. That is more important than his goal for my life. And and Paul says, this is the attitude. When you come together in church, this is the attitude you're to have. There is nothing more important than that other person's needs in front of you. Yours don't count. I didn't say that. The scripture says it. It's right there in Philippians chapter 2. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have any, it doesn't mean you don't have legitimate needs. It means, and people always get bollock stuff when they start doing this, it means that everybody else in the room is supposed to be concerned about your needs. But the truth of the matter is, if you start thinking that way, you're going to be back in that hole of focusing on yourself again. And the other truth, that the sooner we all learn this, the better we are, is that the ultimate meter of all needs is Jesus. Because, friends, the human being does not live who will not at some point let you down. Not because they mean to, not because they're mean and evil and wicked. They, they may be, God forbid, but usually we let each other down because we we were insensitive. We weren't thinking. We didn't realize where an action was going to end up. We We, we say things we, you know, are stupid in retrospect, but they came out and... And we hurt one another. People let people down. Jesus is the one who will never let you down. He is the one who will never leave your side. He is the one who will never fail you. He is the one who will always be there for you. And it is perfectly reasonable. I, I like the way he says it. It's sort of tempered in verse uh, um, 4 a little bit, the second part, where he says, each of you should look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. We have interest. We have needs. We have legitimate desires. And it's, it's appropriate to come into a group and, and long in the, in the love and fellowship of that group for there to be that camaraderie and communion that welds us together. And and I go away feeling encouraged because I've been with that group. I've had needs met. But ultimately, I must come into the circle with the goal of meeting everyone else and the focus of Jesus as being the sole solution for mine. I want to be a conduit of his love and grace. You know, when everybody does that, guess what? No one is selfish. And everyone is loving. And then a real amazing thing happens. All kind of encouragement and blessing and needs are met. And so Paul says, this is the attitude that I want you to have. The other thing I wanted to end with this morning is, is a, um, Acts X. That's the next thing I saw with my eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But I want to tell you a little story about this chapter before we look at it for a moment. You all know that it's the love chapter of the Bible. Most of you know that Paul wrote it. But there's an interesting context of Paul's life. Paul was a focused, hard-driving individual. I'm not sure I'm going to psychologize him and say he was a type A personality. I don't think that's fair. I don't know that he was. But he certainly had a goal in mind. And his goal was to evangelize the entire Roman world. (laughs) It was a big goal, but that was his objective. I want to win the whole Roman Empire to Jesus Christ. And along the way, on their first missionary journey, he had with him a young fellow by the name of John Mark. And at some point in time, John Mark found that missionary life was not all he expected it to be, and he bailed and went home. And so they got around to doing it again, and Barnabas, who was Paul's faithful traveling companion. And by the way, Barnabas' uh, name should be kind of a giveaway as to his viewpoint. He was the son of encouragement. He was a great coach. And, and Barnabas, uh, when they got ready to go out again, said, let's take John Mark. I think he needs another chance. And Paul said, I think you're crazy. He's a wimp. He wimped out on us once. I'm not having him along. He doesn't have the stuff to be a soldier Jesus Christ. And Barnabas said, I think he does. I think he has potential. I think if we work with him, there's great potential in this young man. And Paul said, I'm not taking him. And Barnabas said, well, I'm taking him. And Paul said, well, fine. Then you take him and you go do what you want to do. I'm going my own way. You can go your way. I'm not having any part of John Mark. And so they split up. And Paul went with Silas. And Barnabas took John Mark. And and they and everybody that looks back on that story says, see how wonderful God works in the midst of division, how two groups are now going out evangelizing. I want to tell you something, friends. Whenever followers of Jesus Christ, and that's my caveat, because you, you, you have to come out from among the world and be separate, says the Lord. There are times when division is appropriate because you're not on the same path. But whenever believers divide, this much I know, one person is always wrong. And sometimes they both are. That's always true. You cannot have two people who are right who believe the opposite thing. Now, you can have two people who have different opinions. You can have two people who have different ideas. You can have two people who have different goals. That's neither right or wrong. The, those, many of those things are negotiables. And, and you can work through those things. But if you choose to split up and go your separate ways because you can't get along with your different ideas, one of you is wrong and possibly both. Now, here's what happened. Time went along. I think Paul realized that he was wrong in that situation. The reason I think that is because of what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, which was written a little later than that event. The other thing that I find interesting is, later in Paul's ministry, we learn toward the end of his days, as he's writing his last letters, he says, and and John Mark, who is so helpful to me, He is an encouragement and a blessing. Guess who was right about John Mark? Barnabas. Barnabas saw the potential. Barnabas was willing to invest in him, and as it turns out, toward the end of Paul's life, he was a useful, helpful, supportive colleague in ministry. Because Barnabas invested in him. I think Paul looked back on that event, and, and I hope the time came when those two could, could have uh, truly, you know, I hope Paul was the kind of guy, and I think he probably was, that could say to Barnabas, you know, I still don't have room for wimps on my team, but you know, you were right about John. And I was wrong. And, and I'm sorry that I didn't see it. Because here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians thirteen four: Love is patient. Love is patient. Change does not always occur overnight. And, and love will work through it. Love is kind. Paul says in Ephesians 4 Be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. There he goes talking about Jesus again. Don't you just wish you'd leave him out of the equation? We, we might have room to argue, except he says, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Oh, but you don't know what they did to me. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh, well, that puts a new spin on it. Because God has forgiven you more than you even realize. And furthermore, this is theologically sound. I don't have time to preach a sermon on justification because I'm just about out of time for this one. But God has forgiven you not only for what you've done, but for everything you ever will do. He even knows what you're going to do next to hurt him. And he's already forgiven you. In Christ Jesus, declared you righteous and holy. You doubt me? Read the Scriptures. "...justified by His grace, made righteous in His presence, cleansed and forgiven in Christ Jesus, no matter what you've done, no matter what you'll ever do, by the grace of God, when you repent and turn to Him in faith and trust Him for salvation... Think about it for a moment. If there were sins you could commit, or sins that you did commit, or might commit, that could somehow take you out of God's grace, you would never know from one moment to the next if you were ever saved. But Paul says, I know and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him against that day, and I am confident that to be absent from my body is to be present with my Lord, because I have been justified By the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So God has forgiven us of everything. Doesn't leave much room for exceptions. Love is kind. to, To me, that means it's approachable, it's gentle. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Are you one of those people that keep list? List in your marriage? List with your kids or your parents? List with your friends? List at church? Do you keep a list? Well, I forgive you this time, but you know this is the 37th time and you've only got about 435 to go and then you're done. Do you keep lists? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Friends, in Jesus Christ, you have to let it go. You can't control what another person does, but you can be responsible for what you choose to cling to and what you release to God. And if you don't give it up, you're going to just suffer the rest of your life with your bitterness. And you're going to be the one hurting. And, and, and God is willing to take it. But it's also going to prejudice you in every situation. How many chances does God give you As many as you need, right? How many chances should you give somebody else? Oh, I know, you, you're already thinking. There's like 5,000 exceptions, and just come talk to me later. Love does not delight in evil. You know, some people deserve what they get. They, they've messed up, they've been bad, and they deserve it. But love never rejoices when that happens. In fact, God, who one day will judge every person who is outside of Jesus Christ and consign them to the lake of fire that burns forever in a righteous judgment in a place called hell, the scripture, God Himself says in the scripture, I take no pleasure in the punishment of the guilty. I take no pleasure. But I love the world so much that I sent my only son that whoever would believe in him, I would give eternal life. Because he takes no pleasure. Love rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, Now abides these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Friends, I want to share with you this morning. God has called us to be a family. He has called us to model the forgiveness of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus. He has called us to, to embrace the life of Christ. He has, with His divine sense of humor and purposeful planning, put us together in a body where we are going to rub each other the wrong way and irritate one another and fail one another And frustrate one another. And he says, when you learn to humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God by the power of my spirit. And love like I love. Then the world will be astounded. And they will see God in your midst. Because everybody else in the world acts the other way. It's only in Jesus that you can be different. And the purpose, the purpose of the church is to model that life. It's to reflect His glory. It's to be unlike the world. It's to die to self and glorify Jesus Christ. I just want to wrap up by saying I, I know there's all kinds of change going on in our church. I know that. And the leadership team is trying to do the best it knows how. We, we have all kinds of needs we're trying to meet, and they're all over the place. And we may make mistakes, and we may not always be on target. And what we do that moves toward one group may alienate another. I, I can't even predict all of that. But here's what I know. We are called to be together as a family. We are called to model the love of Jesus Christ. By checking your needs at the door, I don't mean you never talk about them. But if you're frustrated, the Bible has a formula for that, too. It says if, if you've got something that's bugging you, you go talk to the person that's bugging you and sit down and have a meeting of the heart, a meeting of the minds. Communicate. Have conversation. Talk with each other. Because the one thing God has called us to is unity, and that we must preserve at all cost. So we've got to find a way to love each other. And we've got to be patient enough to work through the change. And we've got to be gracious enough to keep no record of the wrongs. And we've got to be committed enough to be kind and tender-hearted and full of compassion so that the life of Jesus Christ can be modeled in us. I want to say again, God has not called me to build a big church but he has called me to build big Christians. And it is my responsibility before him to hold our feet to the fire until Jesus is formed in us. And I cannot let anyone go without making that effort to see Jesus formed in them. Because that's his purpose. Father, when I want to ask you this morning to bless your word to meet us and to love us and to mold us and shape us into Your image. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.